Hi guys. Happy 2024 to you. This is our first time gathering this year. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to forget that it's 2024. Go back in time. We're going to move back 100 years, 300 years, 800 years, 2,000 years. And there's two men, and they're walking into an ancient city right through the gates. And they have a look on their face that tells you they have absolutely no idea what they're walking into. One is named Silas, the other is named Paul. And they've been traveling together on what is now known as Paul's second missionary journey. On the first journey, he and Barnabas uh, went to a number of cities around the Middle East and Asia Minor, and they brought the gospel and planted churches in numerous towns. And then when they returned to Antioch, which was their home church, their sending church, they gave a report of what had happened. And after some time, the church sent them out again to revisit those churches and, and encourage them and check on them and see how they were doing. This time, Barnabas would go in one direction and Paul would go in another direction with a man by the name of Silas. Along the way, they would pick up a young man by the name of Timothy who would become Paul's traveling partner and along with them, a man by the name of Luke, a physician who would become the writer of the book of Acts who would tell us this story. And so Luke and Timothy and Paul and Silas have sketched out this opportunity to go into the land of Philippi, but it didn't happen simply. See, the plan was that they were going to go into Asia. There was an entire continent that had not yet heard the gospel. And Paul said to himself, what better thing than to go into Asia, bring the gospel eastward into Asia and let it spread among the Asian peoples. And so they made their plans and they figured out where they were going to go. And then God said no. And the scripture just tells us that God forbid them to go to Asia, which is a head scratcher, isn't it? Why would God forbid you to go and bring the gospel to people who need it? Well, they made a second plan. <clears throat> they said, well, if God won't let us go to Asia, then we're going to actually go this direction and we'll go to this city called Bithynia. It's a, it's a large city, it's an influential city, and they haven't heard the gospel yet either. And we'll bring the gospel into Bithynia. And they made their plans for how they would do that and what that would look like. And they had a well-planned out strategy. But God also said no. And they had no freedom to go there as well. And so now they're stuck. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. Every time they have a plan, God thwarts it. God will not let them do what they want to do. Don't you hate that? <laughs> don't you hate it when you have a perfectly planned out strategy and you tell God about it and he sort of chuckles and says no? And, and this happened to him again and again and again. And now they're sort of stuck and they have no idea where to go. It seemed like God wasn't interested in blessing their plans. It seemed like God wasn't interested in joining them on their crusade. Have you ever noticed that God isn't sitting around waiting for you to come up with a good plan so he'll have something to do? 
We, we have a tendency to get ideas about what we want to do, good ideas, good things that we want to do. And I, Lord, I'm, I'm going to start this new business. And so I've got this plan. I'm going to start this business, God. And so um, I just realized that I forgot to pray and ask for your blessing. So God, please bless my plans. And God goes, I'm not interested in your plans. Okay, well, God, I have this other idea. I'm going to do this, and I've got it all planned out, and here's how I'm going to do it. And God goes, I'm not interested in your plans. See, the truth is God already has some plans of his own, and he actually doesn't really require your input. And so God uh, sits and waits for us to recognize where he is at work so we can join him in what he's already doing. Let me give you a perfect example of this. We could use countless examples from Scripture, but this one's very well known to you. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Moses, right? And, and he's a Jew born into Egypt where the Jews are slaves. But as you know, through a series of events, he's actually adopted into the household of Pharaoh. And he's raised as Pharaoh's grandson. He's given all of the education, all of the opportunity, all of the resources that go with the royal family. And he's being groomed so that he can actually have an impact. And he has a plan. He has a heart for the Jewish people, and he's going to make sure that when he rises to the level of actual power in Egypt, he can do something about their situation. But one day, as you probably remember, he, he sees uh, one of his uh, Hebrew brethren being beaten by an Egyptian, and he kills the Egyptian, and he's seen doing it, and now he's going to face criminal charges, and so he flees for his life. And we find Moses now out in the middle of the wilderness and he spends 40 years with sheep. That's a long time. It's hard to get that smell off of you. 40 years with sheep. From the palace to the wilderness, from, from the king's court to shepherding. And he spends 40 years doing that, and we pick up his story in Exodus chapter 3. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here in Exodus, but I want you to turn your Bibles there because I want you to see these verses. Uh, the story is familiar to most of us. He's out there with the sheep, and suddenly he notices that there is a bush that is burning, and the burning bush is not being consumed, and he says there's something weird about this, so he turns aside to see it. And we pick it up in verse 4 of Exodus chapter 3. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now 
and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, now Moses had already tried to bring his own plan to fruition. He already had a plan to help his people. It just hadn't really worked out. And as a result, he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert. But it turns out God had a plan all along. God was already at work. He just wanted Moses to stop long enough and notice what he was doing. So he could invite Moses to join him in what he was doing. God was not sitting around waiting for Moses to come up with a plan. God was already at work. And, and you know, Jesus even talked about this in, in John. I, I want to say it's John chapter 5. Jesus says, uh, my father is always working. And I do what I see the father doing. And I don't say anything unless I see, I hear the Father saying it. So, so Jesus says, I, I, I take my cues from the Father. He's already at work. And so I look to see where he's working and I join him in his work. It's this great principle that's taught throughout Scripture that we don't have to wait for God to show up. We don't have to wait for God to notice. We don't have to wait for God to take interest. We don't have to wait for God to figure anything out. God already knows. God's already interested. God has already noticed. And God already has a plan and guess what God is already working and so our job is to join God in what he is doing I could give you dozens of examples from scripture and even more examples from my own life of that principle at work but the principle is clear God is already at work and all he asks of us is to join him in what he is already already doing well Paul had made his plans and the Lord slammed the door. So he made new plans. And the Lord slammed the door again. So he had no idea what to do next. But then just, just like the burning bush, he had an encounter with God. And his came through a vision. <clears throat> and the vision was of a man from Macedonia who appeared to him and begged him to come to Macedonia and preach the gospel so the Macedonian people could come to know Christ. And Paul knew that that was a prophetic vision from God. And so Paul and the guys headed to a leading city in Macedonia, a city called Philippi. Now, the city of Philippi, you've heard of because there's a book in the Bible called the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is to the people in the church at Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony at this time, but a very, very important city. It sits right on this major trade route, and it's kind of the gateway between the Middle East and Europe. And so anyone who is traveling between the Middle East and Europe is going to come through Philippi. So it becomes this very strategic place for the gospel. And while Paul thought it would be great to go to Asia, and while Paul thought it would be great to go to Bithynia, God knew that his plan was first to get the gospel situated on this trade route so that as people pass through, they would hear the gospel, meet Jesus, and then travel on and bring the gospel in every direction. So God's plan turns out was better than even Paul's plan. Go figure. And so he had this vision and they decided to go to Philippi. Now Philippi is a pagan colony. There, there are no Christians there. Nobody's ever heard the gospel yet. But there's not even any Jews there. Uh, 
these guys are used to going to cities where there is some Jewish population, and then on the Sabbath, they go to the synagogue where they meet with the Jews, and they tell them about the Messiah. And there's a, um, an open audience because the Jews are already looking for the Messiah. And so they listen because Paul is a rabbi and a Pharisee. And so they have this opportunity. Every time they go to a city, they go to the synagogue. But when they get to Philippi, they come into the city and they look for the synagogue only to find that there is no synagogue in Philippi. Now, according to Old Testament law, uh, you cannot have a synagogue in a city until there are 10 Jewish men in the city. And when there are 10 Jewish men in the city, you are to begin a synagogue. So they come and there are not even 10 Jewish men in the city. There is no synagogue for them to visit. So on the Sabbath, they go out of the city hoping that outside the city there might be some Jews who are gathering to worship and pray on the Sabbath. And sure enough, they come across by the riverside this small group of Jewish women who is gathered by the riverside for a time of prayer and worship as Jews outside of the city. And they come upon them and they introduce themselves and they begin to tell them about Jesus. And as they begin to tell these ladies about Jesus, one of the ladies, a woman by the name of Lydia, actually gives her life to Christ. And she's the first convert there in that part of the world. And Lydia is so excited about Jesus coming into her life because she's been seeking God all these years, hoping to find the Messiah, and now she has the truth. And she says, you guys have to come and stay with us. And so she invites him into her home. They go and stay in her home. And in her home, they meet her family. They share the gospel with her family and her entire household comes to know Christ. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us how many people in that household. So I don't know, maybe it's four, maybe it's five, maybe it's 10, something like that. Some small number of people come to know Christ and that's basically Lydia's family. And she invites them to stay and preach the gospel. And so they go into the city square. By the way, if you're thinking, is he making all this stuff up? It's in Acts chapter 16. Your assignment is to read it this week during your quiet time, okay? Acts chapter 16, you find this whole story. They go into the city square and they begin to preach. And uh, as they do that, there is this young lady. She's a slave girl. And they come to find out that she's possessed by a demon. And because she's de demon-possessed, she actually is working as a fortune teller. And she's dabbling in the dark arts, so to speak. And that makes a lot of money for her owner, and she's a slave. And she keeps bothering them and interrupting them as they speak until finally Paul just turns around, points his finger at her. Sorry, I didn't mean to point my finger at anybody. Uh, points his finger at some demon-possessed person and, and, and says to the demon, come out of her. And the demon uh, very dramatically comes out of her and she's set free from the control of that demon. And now she can no longer serve her master as a fortune teller. And so Paul and Silas are in big trouble. And that, that her owner becomes angry, goes to the city officials, they drag them into the city square and they beat them with rods, the scripture tells us. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, basically picture a baseball bat with the end sawed off. And they get several men and they tie Paul and Silas to a post and then they just hit them again and again from shoulders to ankles with these baseball bats until their bodies are so broken and bleeding that they think one more blow would kill them. Then they untie them 
they carry them to the jail and they lock them in the dungeon of the prison. Now these men are in stocks, locked up in the dungeon at night. They're bleeding. They undoubtedly have broken bones. They probably have um, damage to their vital organs. They're, they're struggling for life and they're in extreme pain and they're chained up. And so they do what anyone would do in that situation. They sing praises to God. Is that what anyone would do? I don't know. Uh, they sing praises to God, <clears throat> and as they're singing, the earth begins to quake. And when the earthquake happens, the prison doors open and the chains fall off, and God releases them. And the jailer comes in ready to kill himself, thinking that he's going to be put to death for losing his prisoners. And Paul says, you don't need to kill yourself. We're all here. And he comes and talks to Paul and says, tell me what happened. And Paul says, well, my God is really big and starts to tell them about Jesus. He, they, they take Paul and Silas into the jailer's home and they bandage their wounds and care for them. And Paul gathers the jailer's family and tells them about Jesus and the jailer's entire family comes to know Jesus. This is the beginning of the Philippian church. So now we have Lydia's family we have the jailer's family, and presumably we have this woman who had a demon cast out. That's the church. That's all the Christians in Philippi. The leaders of the city come. They find out that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, and therefore they're in big trouble for beating them. And they say, guys, listen, uh, if you could just accept our apology and leave town, we'd really appreciate it. And they, they run Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy and their group out of town. And that's the end of their interaction with the Philippians. So there's, I don't know, a dozen Christians there when they leave. And the most mature Christian among them has been a Christian for a week. What chance does that church have of even continuing to exist, let alone making an impact in the world? You would say it has no chance, but God says, uh, where I'm at work, amazing things happen. And so you would expect that that church would uh, struggle and falter and fail, but the truth of the matter is, that's not what happened. What happened is that those new believers experienced the life-changing power of Jesus, and they can't keep their mouth shut about it. They start telling everyone they know. Their friends and family start coming to know Christ. <clears throat> and then those new believers start telling everyone they know. And their friends and family come to know Christ. And before you know it, you have an evangelistic awakening in the city of Philippi, this pagan city who had never heard the name of Jesus before that. But God's doing something amazing. And now you fast forward 10 years. Paul's going to write a letter back to those Philippians. They're, they're always in his heart, but he's never been back to see them. And, and um, it just makes me think about what must have been going through their mind when they show up in Philippi, knowing they had plans to go to Asia, knowing they had plans to go to Bithynia, and now they end up in Philippi with no idea what they're doing there or how it's going to work. And little did they know there was going to be suffering involved, but God was going to do something miraculous in that place. And every time I read their story, my mind harkens back because I've had that same feeling before. 
On, on January the 5th, 1992, I was a 26-year-old youth pastor who had no idea what God had in mind. Well, I, I was part of this church plant, and, and the church plant was going very well. It had been in existence for about three years, and it was going well, frankly, because we had this really great pastor as a church planter, and everybody loved him, and people came because of him, and he was a good preacher, and he was great at uh, developing relationships with people, and everybody loved him, and so that's why those people were in this church, meeting in this little school in a rented room, because the, the church had nothing. It wasn't even a church yet. It was, it was more of a, a gathering of Christians, and um, I became a part of that team, and I was the youth pastor. And one day, in late 1991, the pastor came to us and said, hey, the Lord is calling me to pastor a church up in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm going to be leaving on the 1st of January. And we all looked at each other and said, well, it was nice knowing you. I guess this isn't going to happen. What do we do? And they asked me if I would preach for the first six weeks in January 1992. And um, <laughs> now I can admit, I said yes, because I was pretty sure the church would die before the six weeks. <laughs> I was pretty sure I'd get two to three weeks in, and then it would be pretty much just me and my wife there, and we would say, okay, maybe there's no church. But six weeks turned into six months, and, and we struggled, honestly, through that year. A couple of you were there at that time, and you'll remember this. We lost um, really half the church within the first six months. We had no building. We weren't even constituted as a church. We had no money. I'm, when I say we had no money, what I mean is we had no money. So that, that, you know, we had to pay rent to this school that we were using. And every Sunday we took an offering and then the guys would go in the back and count the pennies and go, do we have enough to pay the rent for the school this week? We had no money. And we had some wet behind the ears 26-year-old youth pastor who had no idea what he was doing leading this thing. And yet God somehow kept us alive but that first week, I'll never forget it because I had that feeling that those guys had because I was supposed to step into the pulpit and say something that was going to motivate these people to somehow stick around and not quit. And as I was praying about what to preach on, God in my quiet time turned me to the book of Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 1, God gave me a message for the church. And uh, that was the first Sunday in January 1992, and I preached a sermon called Where Do We Go From Here from Philippians 1.6. And every year at the beginning of January since then, I've preached on Philippians 1.6 again, a message called Where Do We Go From Here? And so this week is Where Do We Go From Here? Part 33. It's now been 32 years since I walked trembling up to the front of that congregation and ask them to open to the book of Philippians. And so today, I ask you to open to the book of Philippians. Go to Philippians chapter 1 with me. It goes Galatians, then Ephesians, then Philippians, and then Colossians. Go to Philippians chapter 1, and I don't have a ton of time to unpack all this, but I just want to give you these first six verses where Paul and Timothy address this letter to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, 
to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from this day until now. In other words, Paul says, I haven't been back there since I left 10 years ago, and yet everywhere I go, people are talking about the Philippian church. Everywhere I go, I keep hearing about your participation in the gospel, how you continue to be an impact maker. And it gets to the point where when Paul writes letters to other churches and he needs to correct them, basically what he says is, why can't you be more like the Philippians? The Philippian church becomes the leading church in that day and age that everybody looks to as an example. You go, how in the world did that happen? Verse 6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And, And every year, every January, we open to Philippians and I read you that verse. And every year I feel compelled to remind you and tell you if you haven't heard before Now, when Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, the word you in Greek is plural. If we were in Alabama, we would say y'all. Okay? That's what it is. It's all, or actually, in in Alabama, one person is y'all and the rest is all y'all. Right? (laughs) So so this word is all y'all. So what he's saying is, God, he's not, he's not just saying to some individual, hey, don't worry, I know you're going through a hard time, but God has a plan for your life, which would be true. But he's saying to the whole congregation, to all the saints, verse one, to all the saints at Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, I say this, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. As we read church history, we find out the Philippian church was, was dealing with famine, the church was incredibly poor. They were, they were undergoing all sorts of struggles, but they continued to do the things that God had called them to do. And they continued to send out missionaries. And they continued to take what little they have and send it to others who were in need in order to spread the gospel. That's what they were known for doing. And he says, I have a plan for you, church. I planted this church, says God. I knew what I was doing at the time. I knew where I was going with this. And I am going to complete the good work I began in your local church. That's what he's saying. Now listen, when Paul left these people, there was maybe a dozen baby Christians in Philippi. And now it's become this amazing church. And that happened with no training, no support system, no pastors, no seminaries, no Bibles, no access to anything except the Holy Spirit and one another. They had the gospel, they had the Holy Spirit, and they had a vision from God. And some 10 years later, Paul writes them a letter of encouragement and instruction, and I want you to notice he's talking to all of them. Before he dives into his instruction and his doctrinal teaching, he starts with a little reminder. He says, there is no way to explain the success of this church apart from the fact that God started it, God is continuing it, and God will complete it. He reminds them of that. 
Nobody but God could possibly get the credit for the spiritual awakening that took place in Philippi. How do you explain this? This is not some great preacher who rides into town, plants a church, and builds it into something great. This is not some denominational work where everybody gathers their resources and sends people. This is just the Holy Spirit doing Holy Spirit stuff that only the Holy Spirit can do. And people have to stand back and go, wow, God's amazing. That's what happened in Philippi. It wasn't because of their leadership. Remember, Paul and the guys, they left right after they led those people to Christ. It wasn't because of their denominational support. There were no denominations. It wasn't because of their extensive ministry experience or their seminary training or anything like that. They didn't have any of those things. They just had the gospel and they had the Holy Spirit and they had a vision from God. And by the way, they had one another and they were in it together. Well, in January of 1992, we were exactly that kind of church. We barely survived that year. As I said, over half the people left and took their giving with them. Um, We had no money in the bank. We're meeting in a rented school building. We're still being led by this completely inexperienced, uneducated, untrained, immature 26-year-old who didn't know what he was doing. He had hair, but that was the only, <laughs> only thing he had. And somehow we made it through that year. I was ordained in January of 1993 and named the permanent senior pastor. But we still had no idea what we were doing. And a month goes by and I get a call. And they say, hey, look, we know that um, you guys are meeting in a school and you don't have a building you know, a, a really nice church building with a full property has become available just about two miles from where you guys are meeting. Are you interested in it? Well, of course we're interested in it. I, I would love to have it. Um, when do I pick up the keys? As soon as you pay us. Oh, pay. I didn't know about the pay part. And, and they explain that they're going to make an amazing deal and we're going to get it for way less than it's worth than it really was. It's, it's, it was an incredible thing. And we start praying about it and thinking about it and praying about it. We just become convinced this is God's plan for us. But then they said, well, here's the thing, though. You're going to have to come up with $30,000 in cash by next Monday. And I said, we don't have $30 in cash. And so literally it was so deflating. And And I just said, well... Could you give us some more time? They said, no, there's another church interested, and if, we, if you can't do it by Monday, we need to move on. And so I prepared myself to let the church know that the property deal fell through and there was no way to do it. And as I prayed about that, the Lord just seemed to be batting me on the head and saying, why are you going to say no for the people? Why don't you let them say no for themselves? And I... I I stood in the pulpit that next Sunday morning and I said, guys, look, we've been praying about this. We've been talking about this. We know what an advantage it would be to have that um, building. We know that that community needs a living, vibrant church right there. Um, This would be world-changing 
But the truth of the matter is, it costs $30,000, and we don't have $30,000, and uh, they need the money by next week. And I was about to say no, but then I decided that I would talk to you guys, and what we'll do is we'll just take a special offering next Sunday, and you just put whatever the Lord calls you to put in that offering, and if somehow uh, God takes two loaves and or five loaves and two fish and turns it into $30,000, that'll be great. But otherwise, we'll be meeting in a school until Jesus comes back. <laughs> and uh, we took that offering the next week, and the guys gathered afterwards and counted the money, and it was $30,000. So we wrote a check, and we moved into that property. It was just two miles away. You have never seen a more excited group of Christians. God had just miraculously provided this. We had a vision for how we're gonna reach this community. We had a preschool that we were gonna be building that was going to be offer uh, affordable Christian daycare to young families. We were gonna be sharing Christ with those kids and their parents and reaching out to families in that way. We were gonna be doing door-to-door evangelism and meeting our community and neighbors and seeing how we could meet their needs. We were gonna start a food pantry and feed the hungry and make sure that everybody who had a need was having that need met. Um, we, were, we had all plans for children's ministry and youth ministry and all kinds of things we were going to do. And uh, about a month after we moved into that property in the summer of 1993, another religious organization opened a property. It was the largest Buddhist temple this side of the Mississippi River in the city of Hacienda Heights. It was just a couple miles from our church. And what I didn't know was that that meant that a five-mile radius around that temple became Buddhist holy ground, which meant if you lived in that five-mile radius, you were going to have luck. And so um, Buddhists began buying up the land because it was worth so much more to them than it was to non-Buddhists. And so what happened is that when we started in Roland Heights, when we, when we began our ministry in Roland Heights, the, we did all the demographic research and we learned that the community was uh, multiracial uh, and among the multiracial community, it was 5% Asian and that was all the Asian groups put together, 5%. Within one year, it was 85% Asian and that was almost 100% Korean and Chinese. And almost 100% of those were first generation, which meant they were not English speakers for the most part. And so our community changed. The people who lived in our community who were part of our church sold their homes for double what they were worth and moved somewhere else, left our church. And then the people who were left were coming in from other cities. And um, suddenly we didn't speak the language of the people in the community we were supposed to reach. We were devastated. We had no idea what to do. We cared every bit as much about the Asian people who were living there as we did about the people of other races who had been living there, but we couldn't communicate in their language. We had no idea what to do, and man, did we pray. <laughs> we, we had meetings, and we prayed, and we fasted, and we had more meetings, and prayed, and sought the scripture, and tried to figure this out, tried to get counsel from others, and, and finally, the Lord just put a vision on our heart and said, I put you here to reach this community. To do that, we're going to have to plant the Korean church and plant the Chinese church. So that's what we did. We had no church planting experience whatsoever, no idea what we were doing, but we, the Lord made it happen. We planted a Korean church and a Chinese church, and they exploded overnight. 
The, the Chinese church grew so fast that uh, with, in less than a year, they bought property directly across the street, built buildings, and were running 500 people on Sunday morning. They were launched as their own church. The Korean church also was growing, but at a slower pace. The English language church was shrinking, and the Korean church is growing. So we knew that our vision was to see that community reached for Christ, whatever it took. And for that to happen, the English language church was going to have to die. And the Korean and Chinese churches were going to have to flourish. So we, we rewrote our budget to make that happen. We invested our time to make that happen. We did everything to make that happen. We moved the English service to 8 a.m. because everybody wants to come to church at 8 a.m. <laughs> and, and we moved the English service to 8 a.m. And then we had three straight Korean services. I think it was uh, 9.30, 11, and 12.30, something like that. Um, and uh, we just invested in that. And the, and the Korean church kept growing. Until around 2005, 2006, we looked around and said, you know, the truth is we're in the way here. And so in 2006, we went to the Korean leaders and we said, we weren't, we're going to give you this property and we're going to move out of the way. And they said, well, where will you go? What will you do? And we said, yeah, that part God hasn't showed us yet. We don't know. Um, but we think God's not finished with us yet because the pastor keeps preaching from Philippians 1.6. And so we... Uh, we handed them the keys, and I'd love to tell you the longer version of the story, but I'm already nearly out of time, so let me keep going. What happened was uh, I met a young pastor who was pastoring a little church in Duarte who came up to me and said, hey, we have a church property we'd like to give away. And I said, isn't that a coincidence? <laughs> we need a church property, and we'd like someone to give it to us. And uh, we began to meet with that group, and over time it became clear, and that church dissolved, and they handed us this property. Now, if you've lived in this area for a while, you will know that for decades there was a little dilapidated building on this property, and that was where we began to meet. That worship center, if you shoved everybody in it, you could get 90 people if everybody sat close to each other. And uh, we brought 50 people to launch this thing. And within no time at all, we were, we were packing out the service, so we had to add a second service. And after a while, we were packing out both services, and we said, okay, it's time to tear down the building and build a larger building. And so we start uh, to interview contractors, and we, we get drawings done, and we meet with various contractors, and we listen to their spiel, and finally, we settle on a fantastic contractor who is very, very well-respected, has a great track record, and they show us their plan, and they tell us that we're going to knock down this building, build a new building, and the whole thing is going to take four months, and it's going to cost $400,000. And we said, look, we're not stupid. We know it will take at least five months and we know it would probably cost 450. So we planned for that. And we began to meet in a tiny little church in Monrovia, again at 8 a.m. And to build the building you sit in, it, it took 13 months and $1.1 million. And we ran out of money. We got to the end, and, and there was like, we, we need to put on doorknobs and light bulbs and those kind of things. And there, there's no more money. It was going to take $40,000 to finish the project. And we were out of money, completely out of money. 
And it's a long story. If you want to hear the details of it, you can go to the uh, website and go through the, um, what's it called? Next Steps class, sorry. Go to the Next Steps class and hear the longer story. But let me just tell you the small part. Here's what happened. In a, in a Korean church in Los Angeles, a lady who never knew us, never heard our story, did not know the specifics of our need, was told that there's a church that is praying for money because they haven't been able to finish their project. And she was spending time in prayer and she came up to the pastor afterwards and said, while I was praying, God told me to to give some money to that church. And they brought me this envelope and I opened it up and it was a check from a person we never met for $40,000. And we finished the building and we cut the ribbon and we invited the community and people started coming. And before long, we were in two services and then we were, we were starting to pack out two services and starting to have discussions about when and how do we add a third service. And then March 2020 came. And we went from one service to two services to zero services. And like every other church, we try to figure out how we're supposed to stay alive during COVID and how we're going to figure all of that stuff out. And um, we somehow stayed alive. We put a tent out in the back and we began meeting out there. We put cameras in the room and started going online and doing all of that kind of stuff. And we have been dog paddling for the last three years just trying to keep our head above water as a church. But last year, as some of you know, God just really began to bless what was happening here and the, and the attendance on Sunday morning started to grow and the number of new people started to increase and uh, it became time to add a second service again. So just a few months ago, we added a second service and you guys are the second service and I look around and already look at how few empty seats there are in two services now. God is doing an amazing thing but what I want you to know is it's not just an amazing thing he's been doing through October or since October it's an amazing thing he's been doing since 1992 and it's not just an amazing thing he's been doing since 1992 it's an amazing thing he's been doing since the first century when when the the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit fell and the church was born and God has been spreading the gospel church to church and person to person and city to city for 2,000 years and we have had the incredible privilege of getting to be a part of that gigantic story. And I tell you this whole story, not because I want you to go, wow, isn't Grace Fellowship cool? But because I want you to go, man, Grace Fellowship is such a loser church. They had absolutely no chance of making it and surviving if it wasn't for the fact that they serve an awesome God. There's no other way to explain it. But God has given us this incredible privilege and allowed us to be a part of him doing something miraculous. And my friends, listen, he's not finished yet. I'd like to stand here and tell you that I know what the future holds. I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. And I have watched what he does. And I'm telling you that when he makes a promise to a church and he says that I will complete the good work that I began in you, I promise you he will complete the good work he began in us. And we sit today in 2024 in a city that is enveloped in darkness as our culture gets further and further from God. And God has placed us here and said, you are the light of the world. Share the gospel. Love people. 
give, give sacrificially to meet people's needs. Make it about loving God, loving people, and God will change the world through you. He placed us here for that. People are lost without Jesus, but he's called us to go and make disciples. Families are crumbling all around us, but God will change lives as we minister to people the incredible thing that God has already done in us. I realize that I've done nothing today but really t- sort of tell you a story about what God has done in the past. But guys, it's important to know what God has done in the past because it reminds us what God is like. But, but this week I was reading in Hebrews and I was in Hebrews chapter 11 and if you know that chapter at all, it's known as the hall of faith and he talks about Abraham and Noah and Moses and David and Elijah. It goes right down the thing and talks about how God worked through all of these kind of people. And then he comes to the end and chapter 12 begins with this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, and then he calls us to keep running the race. It is important for us sometimes to look back and go, you know what? It's not about impressive people. It's about an impressive God. It's not about impressive strategies. It's about an impressive God. It's not about my plans. It's about God's plans. And guys, the Lord has changed my life in this church. The Lord, is, the Lord has blessed so many people and all around the world, we have people who are a part of Grace Fellowship that God has, has discipled and then sent out who are making disciples everywhere else. We have missionaries in the field all around the world. God is doing amazing things and we get to be part of it in 2024. What an incredible privilege. It's God's story. And he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What a mighty God we serve. What a privilege it is to serve him together in 2024 and beyond. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and pray. God, we want to say thank you for you are an awesome God. And as we think about your story, whether it's in our personal lives, in our local church, in other churches, in other cities, in other places, we know that you're a working God. And we're so, so privileged to be invited to join you in what you're doing. So help us, God, not to get ahead of you. Help us not to fall in love with our own plans. Let us just fall more deeply in love with you that you might be able to flow through us. We pray for this community, the city of Duarte and Monrovia and Azusa and Irwindale and the surrounding area. We pray for the San Gabriel Valley. We pray for the greater Los Angeles area and all of California, throughout the United States and across the oceans. God, we pray that, that your spirit would flow, flow in us, flow through us and change the world. Help us, God, in 2024 and beyond to love you, to love people, and through us, change the world. And we'll give you all the praise and glory because you deserve every bit of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.